Welcome to U.S. China, searching for common ground. There's little question that China's rising power poses new challenges for American foreign policymakers. But to what purposes does China intend to put its newfound economic and military capabilities? Do Chinese leaders seek to overturn the basic rules and institutions of the existing international order? Do they wish to challenge the global leadership of the United States? Well, a Chinese scholar offers surprising answers. And we're here to talk with him. We're here to talk with Professor Wu Xinbo, professor and dean of the Institute of International Studies and director of the Center for American Studies at Fudan University. He teaches and researches China's foreign and security policy, Sino-U.S. relations, and U.S.-Asia Pacific policy. Professor Wu is the author of a half dozen major books on U.S.-China relations and Chinese foreign policy, including most recently China and the Asia Pacific Chess Game. Published by Fudan University Press in 2017, his work has also appeared in English language journals such as International Affairs, The Washington Quarterly, Journal of Contemporary China, Contemporary Southeast Asia, and Asian Survey. I want to welcome Professor Wu to the podcast. Welcome. Thank you. And、uh, of course, I'm joined as always by co-host and academic powerhouse David Skidmore from Drake University. David, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing well, thanks, Carl. Well, why don't you kick off our conversation with、uh, with our esteemed guest? Well, very happy to to have this opportunity to to chat, Professor Wu. I remember that we met over dinner in May or June of 2017, and not long after the Mar-a-Lago summit between Presidents Trump and Xi, and we were wondering about how things would go over the coming years. And I think I predicted that. That、uh, things would not go very well. <laughs> so, I, unfortunately, I think I was I was correct about that.、Uh, I don't know if you remember that conversation.、Uh, I, I do, I do.、Uh, at that time, I I, I was somewhat、uh, surprised with your、uh, answer. Well, let's you know now、uh, we have a change in presidents, and yet you know even in the last week and a half, we've still seen conflicts and, and tensions despite the change in in leadership. So. I want to broaden out the picture, and the rising conflict we've seen between the U.S. and China is sometimes attributed to a shift in power, with China poised to surpass the U.S. The U.S. trying to hold on to its the、uh, hegemonic role. So I want to ask you: Is that the right frame for understanding the problem? And is China likely to surpass the U.S. in overall national power within the next decade? Well,、um, in the current China-U.S.、Um, tension,、uh, I think there is a strong、uh, realist element、um, when we are trying to explain this phenomenon.、Uh, in the last two decades, certainly we have seen a steady、um, narrowing of the gap of capabilities between、uh, China and the United States. In the last、uh, two decades. China has taken strides in developing its economic, uh, military uh, capabilities, as well as in、um, expanding its international influence. 
and it's pro projected that Chinese economy may overtake that of the United States in the next uh, decade. And also, um, in the last 10 years, we have seen China has become more confident and more proactive, uh, taking more e uh, international initi initi initiatives, sorry about that, uh, including um, um, the uh, Better Road Initiative and also the um, um, Asian uh, Infrastructure uh, Invest Bank. So this shows um, to the United States as a, a powerful, a more powerful and a more uh, confident and sometimes more assertive China. Uh, so that is the picture uh, on the Chinese side. On the U.S. side, I think since um, the financial crisis in 2008, there has been a rising anxiety in the United States about the relative decline of the United States, not necessarily because of the rise of China, but because uh, many uh, U.S. observers, they are concerned that the U.S. Uh, political system is no longer working well, uh, uh, confronting the growing bipartisanship. Uh, the U.S. economy is no longer so competitive and the U.S. may be no longer so dominant in technological areas. So this kind of anxiety and fear has been uh, exacerbated by the rapid rise of China. So I think that is the uh, uh, context in which I think about the growing China-U.S. Uh, rivalry. Having said that, I do not believe that China-U.S. competition is like what we saw during the Cold War or uh, before the Cold War, because this competition is not a traditional political military competition, because China doesn't have the interest of exporting its uh, ideology or political system. And also China has no interest in engaging the U.S. in an uh, all-out uh, arms race as the Soviet Union did during the Cold War. So I think the competition between our two countries is more uh, economic and social. That means uh, who can develop economy more rapidly and who can uh, do a better job in uh, internal governance, uh, economic growth, technological, technological development, and also uh, a better um, internal governance really uh, 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 is the focus of Southern U.S. competition. That was a great analysis, Professor, and you know that's consistent with some of you know what I've uh, you know read in your writing and analysis about how you say that you know when it comes to China and the U.S., China doesn't want to compete politically or ideologically, but it wants to compete economically and, and technologically, right? And so that you know that leads yeah. naturally into my question. I just wonder, but you, is it possible to confine that competition? so neatly uh, you know, to those categories when you have s sometimes such stark differences in terms of social issues or human rights issues or what it might, whatever it might be, or control over particular territories, um, you know, Hong Kong, et cetera. Is it, can, can the competition be confined to those categories uh, in the foreseeable future? Well, I think uh, issues like uh, human rights, Hong Kong, and issue, uh, they should be, be put in the context of uh, domestic governance. Uh, for China, it's not a, 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 an ideological issue. It's a matter of uh, domestic uh, governance. 
to some extent, China is still very much uh, in a stage of uh, uh, nation building and state building. So uh, we all know the, the, the background of Hong Kong issue, the former colony uh, of Britain. For Xinjiang, for example, is uh, an area um, uh, mostly inhabited by the uh, Uyghur uh, minorities. So this kind of ethnic tension has been always a challenge uh, uh, for the central government in Beijing to deal with. So I think when Beijing deal with, deal, deals with this kind of issues, uh, the concern is mostly about uh, sovereignty and territory integrity. These are not about, you know, ideology, capitalism, socialism, marketism. It's not uh, the way uh, we think about it. So I think um, for China, this is a complicated ch a challenge in dealing with uh, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Xinjiang, and Tibet. So the, the, this kind of uh, governance issue uh, will remain a major challenge uh, whether a uh, more powerful China will be able to create a more stable and harmonious uh, domestic uh, social order. On that question, you know, during the Mao period, the focus was on, you know, was on class conflict. It was on Marxism. And, and then after Mao, after the Mao period, then there was an embrace of nationalism, right? In the 90s, especially patriotic education and all of that focused on the idea of, you know, the Chinese civilization and nation and also on the CCP as the representative of the nation. And yet, if the question I have is whether that kind of nationalism is flexible enough, broad enough to have a provide a home for, let's say, the Uyghurs or the Tibetans or even for the Hong Kong, because, you know, we've seen the young people's sense of identity in Hong Kong has moved away from sense of being Chinese. So does China need to revisit the terms of its national identity to be more encompassing of these peripheral groups? Uh, we don't call it nationalism. We call it patriotism. Okay. Right. Uh, but same anyway, thing in the um, US. <laughs> um, we, we are talking about the same things. Well, I think um, the uh, ruling party, the CCP in China, has been trying to find new sources of legitimacy for its uh, uh, role uh, in China. So in the Mao Euro, the legitimacy was mainly from the political dimension, political and ideological. After Mao, um, starting from then, uh, we not only resorted to uh, nationalism, as you call it, but also to um, better social economic development, uh, which I think is more important and uh, a source than uh, nationalism. So I think in the last four decades, certainly China has been a successful country among the developing uh, 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 countries. Uh, in terms of social economic uh, development. So um, people have benefited greatly from the uh, economic growth and social uh, development. So in dealing with uh, issues like uh, Xinjiang or, or Tibet, um, not only you need to um, develop uh, a narrative about as you know a Chinese nation, 
So um, um, uh, national unity is important, but also how to uh, improve the living standard. So that's that is what the central government has been doing in the last several decades. Uh, when the coastal areas in China has developed, um, the cities and um, provinces in the coastal area areas have been asked by the central government to help uh, those uh, backward, relatively less developed regions um, in the West, including Xinjiang and Tibet. So by keep uh, lifting their living standard, so you want to narrow the economic gap and reduce people's um, unhappiness about this economic inequality. This also implies to Hong Kong. Actually, uh, in the last two decades, Hong Kong has lost uh, its advantageous position vis-a-vis Shenzhen uh, and, and Shanghai. So this may be part of the reason that the young people in Hong Kong, they feel very unhappy, feel more and more disappointed, uh, especially they say, you know, the rapid economic growth uh, on the Chinese uh, mainland. Uh, so I think the central government also encourage the uh, local government in Hong Kong, you need to provide provide more employment, uh, more housing for the young people. So I think the key is really not about uh, nationalism or patriotism, but what concrete deliverables, uh, socioeconomic uh, welfare you can provide to um, citizens living in Hong Kong or in Xinjiang, in Tibet. I think that's what the central government has been trying to do. That's interesting. So, you know, if some of these issues that we're talking about, you, you know, you're saying in some ways need to be seen more through the lens of, uh, you know, economic development or, you know, internal uh, affairs or, you know, the integrity of the nation itself, um, you know, that true in China can be true in the U.S. Uh, on a number of issues, too. But still, even if, if that's the case, there will be areas of conflict. So when we're talking about the power dynamic between the two nations, which of the nations, the U.S. or China, do you think has more uh, leeway or leverage now with uh, the rest of the international community? You know, if, if, one, if one or the other makes a bolder move on the world stage, which now do you think, uh, you know, just has a little bit more um, room to operate in terms of uh, not only its neighbors, but just, uh, and not only allies, but the international community as a whole? Is it, um, you know, if one or the other were to make a, a particularly strategic, bold move as they, you know, as they forge ahead here in the, in the near term? Um, well, theoretically, I think China has more leeway to do uh, because, uh, we still have a, a lot of problems to solve. So if we can successfully solve these problems, that will greatly improve China's international image as a rising power. I mean, I mean, China is not not just rising, but also uh, learning in many regards. Uh, especially uh, think about, as I just mentioned, internally China is still in the process of state building and nation building. So as a civilization, China is very old. But as a very uh, as a modern state, China is relatively young, younger than the United States. So if if China uh, uh, learns uh, uh, well and quickly and adjusts uh, well, then we can make a lot of progress um, uh, um, on many dimensions of internal governance. This also applies to the international dimension. 
China is also a newcomer on the international stage. Uh, uh, something uh, uh, ha happened in the last two or three decades. So uh, unlike the United States, which has been, you know, the uh, uh, leader uh, uh, since World War II. So I think China uh, needs to learn a uh, how to uh, get along well with its neighbors, especially with those uh, who, uh, with whom we still have the territorial maritime disputes, we still have the issue left by history. Uh, I mean, we have a very complicated neighborhood. Uh, for, unfortunately, China lives with more um, um, neighbors than any other country does. This is a very complicated neighborhood. And also, uh, how can China um, play a role well in the international system? Uh, uh, in the multilateral uh, context? And how can China um, uh, improve its narrative to the international audience, uh, making the international uh, uh, audience easier to understand what China is, is saying and, and doing? So in this regard, I think China has a lot of opportunities to improve itself. For the United States, uh, to some extent, I think the United States um, to put it this way, the United States is already a mature, mature power uh, in terms of domestic governance and its international uh, behavior. So in this regard, I don't think the United States can uh, make that big uh, uh, difference, uh, both internally and externally, as China does. In this regard, I think China uh, has a lot of work to do. Uh, to become more uh, influential on the international stage. So thinking about the broadly about the global institutional order, which areas do you see where China plays the role more of a supporter? Which areas does China maybe wish to revise? Or um, which areas would China like to be uh, the initiator, sort of a create, created either a parallel institutions or you know, new institutions? Well, um, this is not a clear-cut picture. Uh, in some areas, you can say um, China may want to do both. Uh, for example, in the international economic system, uh, China has been a major beneficiary of that system in the last four decades. Without this uh, an open international economic system, China wouldn't have achieved such remarkable economic growth. So certainly China is a, a strong uh, supporter of the current international system. But at the same time, increasingly, China also wants to introduce some major reform in this system so as to reflect uh, the growing role and weight of developing economies, including China. For example, China wants to have uh, um, a larger quota in international monetary fund. China wants to get more uh, voting rights in World Bank, corresponding to China's growing economic weight. So in economic area, you can you say China being both a supporter, but also a force for reform. Okay, um, on the inter on the political side, on the one hand, I think China is quite happy with the uh, United Nations system, which means all the countries big or small, weak or strong, we are equal, right? We are equal sovereign states. That's a major principle for United Nations. 
And also, China is a, a, a member, a prominent member of the UN Security Council, which gives China, United States, and other prominent members some special privileges. So um, equal, but also uh, somewhat uh, uh, differentiated. So China is quite happy with the UN system. But on the other hand, China also wants to um, consolidate the principle of non-interference in the internal affairs. Whenever you know China was criticized by other countries, particularly the United States, for the management, the handling of internet is internal affairs. Also, um, on the security front, I mean, China uh, uh, safeguards the central role of the United Nations, the Security Council, in maintaining water peace and security. Uh, at the same time, China is not happy with the U.S. relying on its alliance system, especially in the Asia Pacific, as the primary primary goal. And sometimes China feels that the United States is taking advantage of its security alliance in this region to contain, at least to um, constrain China on the security front. So you see a mixed picture is not clear cut, but overall, I would like to say, to say China's rise has benefited a lot from the current international system. So China wants to maintain this uh, international system at the same time to uh, push for its gradual reform and improvement uh, in a, 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 a steady way. So we do have a new administration in, D in Washington. And where do you see the low-hanging fruit of cooperation, the areas where we can get some quick wins in terms of improving uh, relations? And on the other hand, where are some real danger spots that could easily, things could equally take a bad turn? I think there are three areas we can uh, um, get some quick uh, progress. Uh, one, of course, we should cooperate in fighting uh, the pandemic, COVID-19. So uh, both technologically and in other areas, uh, we can uh, uh, cooperate. It's a big mistake uh, that uh, the, the, the Trump administration refused to cooperate and with China and other countries. And the second, of course, is climate change. I'm glad to say that Biden uh, decided on the very first day of his administration to return to climate change. So um, China, U.S., we brought uh, the Paris Agreement to uh, reality in 2016. Now, if we cooperate, we can certainly once again um, to drive the process uh, of fighting climate change. The third area, speaking as a university professor, I want to see uh, rapid progress in people-to-people uh, -people exchanges, educational uh, cultural exchanges between the two countries. In the last uh, several years, uh, we have suffered too much from the bad policy uh, by Trump administration Many of my colleagues, uh, either the visa, U.S. visa were uh, revoked or, or re rejected. Uh, some of my colleagues, colleagues, they were harassed by FBI uh, when they were in the United States. And many of the uh, uh, research uh, cooperation projects, educational and research between Fudan University 
and you and and our U.S. counterparts have been suspended or cancelled. This this, in my opinion, is really a disaster. I think the two sides can make quick progress in uh, uh, repairing these people to people ties. Uh, um, I mean, David, we talk about uh, many difficult issues, uh, but I think in the long term, relations between our two countries really rely on the connection, on the ties between two peoples, especially between uh, the uh, young generation. That is uh, very, uh, very important. Uh, I myself has grown intellectually from my ties with my uh, U.S. professors, friends like you, and this has a lot of impact uh, on my um, uh, intellectual growth, on my research work, on my view about this relationship. So I hope uh, the young generation they can continue to enjoy this important uh, ties uh, exchanges. Now, what are the um, the dangerous, the risk areas? One, of course, is in South China Sea. Uh, this has been uh, in high um, tension in the last several years. So although I don't think the two countries will fight a war over South China Sea, but I do worry about uh, this kind of accidental uh, encountering between um, um, two navies and two air forces uh, in this region. And also, I'm even more concerned about the Taiwan issue, especially the Trump administration in the last several years. They have been trying to um, challenge one China policy and, uh, and um, to uh, adopt a different approach to the Taiwan issue. This, uh, in my opinion, from a Chinese perspective, is not just um, um, dangerous, it's just it's explosive. So if we, we do not handle the Taiwan issue well, that's going to destroy the entire uh, relationship. But also, um, uh, um, I want to point um, the what you view as a kind of value or ideology issue, issues relating to Hong Kong or, or Xinjiang or Tibet. So from the US side, that may be a value issue. From the China, from the Chinese side, as I explained earlier, that is an issue of domestic uh, governance, an issue of state building and nation building. So the Democrats sometimes they may be driven by very uh, harsh and sharp uh, um, uh, ideological uh, uh, tendency. So they may link Hong Kong issue or, or Tibetan issue, Xinjiang issue, to other issues in bad relations, which will make this uh, a very uh, difficult, thorny uh, issue to deal with. So I, I, that's my concern about the, the possible uh, dangers and risks down the road. I just wanted to say one thing, which is that mm -hmm. I, I, I agree with you very much about the people-to-people -people ties and the scholarly exchanges. You know, I think that... Um, the opportunity to uh, learn from one another gives us a responsibility to help educate our own uh, people, our students, and anyone else who will listen what we learn about one another because we've had the privilege of traveling back and forth and making these scholarly relationships. And so uh, unless we are there, you know, unless people who have those those experiences are 
available and able to engage in, you know, explaining China to America and explaining America to China, then uh, uh, it's easy to fall into very dangerous stereotypes. Yeah, I, I'll add to that chorus. I mean, I totally believe in citizen diplomacy, and I had the same reaction, Professor, to to your point on that. Um, that kind of work is, is, and the educational exchanges are so crucial. Um, I've, I've done some volunteering for citizen diplomacy, and I totally believe in it. You, so when you're outlining some of those potential, uh, I mean, some of the challenges and then some of the areas of cooperation, of course, we have these two uh, you know, very uh, large, you know, figures, these two main leaders, President Biden and President Xi. And, and of course, on this end of the pond, we can say that, uh, you know, the President Biden administration, just by nature, uh, exhibits some more stability into the relationship and is more globalist and wants to rejoin the international world order. But beyond the two presidents, are there any other uh, officials, any other people, staff on either, in either country, you know, government officials, um, foreign diplomats, trade negotiators, whatever, any other people that you kind of point to as uh, an indication of, of where things might go or who might play an outsized role in the, in the negotiations and um, in some of these issues going forward besides the two top leaders? Um, anybody else? that you see is going to be influential in some of these issues that you're putting out there? We are paying a lot of attention to Biden's um, foreign and security policy team uh, these days. Um, for example, um, Secretary uh, um, Tony Blinken, um, he stands as a sharp contrast to um, his predecessor. I mean, Blinken is a professional diplomat. He has the international horizon. Um, while Pompeo is mainly a politician, he mainly focused on um, domestic politics. So for Blinken, uh, I believe um, he has a broad perspective on relations with China, not just to think about this relation from U.S. domestic politics, but more importantly, uh, from the anger of international system. So he understands the importance of this relationship for the operation and maintenance of the current international uh, system. And also as a professional diplomat, he understands the importance of norms and the rules in governing bilateral relations in dealing with each other, not just play the domestic politics to deal with another country as people like uh, Pompeo did. Uh, and also um, I, I understand that Blinken, um, when he served in the Obama administration, he had some uh, substantive um, uh, engagement with his Chinese counterparts, including now our Foreign Minister Wang Yi and also um, uh, and senior official uh, Mr. Yang Jiechi. So he, uh, he uh, knows them well, so it's easy for them to communicate uh, to each other. So that is very important. Another figure in the Biden team is uh, Kurt Campbell, uh, who is going to be the kind of the, the, the Asia, uh, Asia policy tsar, to put it that way, uh, the major coordinator for uh, um, Biden's um, Asia policy. Uh, I remember um, what he wrote uh, several years ago on foreign affairs, criticizing Trump administration when it says it wants to compete with China 
but his policy turns out to be more confrontational than competitive. And he thinks this is unnecessary. And he thinks that the United States should compete with China and should avoid as much as possible confrontation with China. And also, Kurt Campbell, um, he talks about a regional order in Asia. And in his vision for the regional order, China is an important part of this order. That means he doesn't want to draw a line to put China outside of the order. Uh, I mean, kind of return to the Cold War order that U.S. and its allies uh, within the order while China, maybe North Korea are outside of the order. So that's 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 not what he's, he's talking about. He really wants to build, to help uh, shape an inclusive and cooperative regional order if he can. Uh, and China uh, should play a major role in this process. And China should occupy a prominent position in this order. I think that the uh, least uh, ground for China and U.S. cooperation in uh, managing uh, regional affairs. And also, of course, um, Kurt Campbell as an expert on Asia in general, he understands China's sensitivity on issues like Taiwan. He has very much uh, experienced and also understands China's sensitivity in uh, 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 Xinjiang and, and Tibet. So I think he has this kind of, you know, uh, uh, nuanced gear in dealing with this um, uh, uh, sensitive issues uh, in engaging uh, uh, with China. So I think this is a, a, a quite good team uh, for Biden to deal with China and Asia. So you were talking about regional order, and that's a, a major question because, you know, compared with Europe, in some ways, East Asia has been under-institutionalized. And the order that exists is almost a legacy of the of the World War II and the early Cold War, right? Especially the hub and spokes alliance system that the U.S. has. So then the question is: Is it possible to build or on existing or new international security institutions, or at least rules and norms that will regulate competition? You know, we have ASEAN, we have we had the six-party talks as kind of examples of institutions that at least uh, address some of these issues. But so when an issue like South China Sea comes up, if there's no rules and we just, you know, we're just out there slugging it out on, on the high seas, uh, that is dangerous. But is there any way that we can institutionalize the security environment there to to create more stability? Uh, yes, I think we do need to develop uh, this kind of institutionalized arrangement. Well, in this region, as you mentioned, in the past, um, the institutionalization of security has been um, the US alliance system. Uh, but this is not enough because China and many other regional members are not a part of this alliance system. And also the alliance system cannot provide a solution to the South China Sea issue or to the uh, Korean Peninsula issue. So for this kind of uh, specific issue, we need to develop de facto uh, institutional arrangements. For example, in South China Sea issue, currently China is negotiating the code of conduct with South Asian countries, which will provide uh, rules and norms 
for managing the South China Sea issue. On the, uh, on the Korean Peninsula, we used to have the six-part talks. I hope uh, in the future, there can be more institutionalized arrangement in dealing with the uh, uh, Korean Peninsula issue. Having said that, I think Asia is not going to develop a unitary uh, security institution because, um, I mean, not to say Asia, even we talk about East Asia, is so diverse in terms of security interests, in terms of conflicting security interests, and also geo geographically very uh, uh, diverse. We may need to um, develop some kind of a regional arrangement from regional economic cooperation. So um, unlike uh, uh, East Asia or Europe in the past, the um, regional framework has uh, been derived from security uh, design during the Cold War. Today, East Asia is pushing for regional economic integration and cooperation. This will, will gradually lead to some institutionalized regional arrangements. Uh, for example, uh, East Asian community. Uh, that's what people were talking about uh, 15 years ago in 2005. First, let's build a regional economic community. And then there will be a spillover effect from economic cooperation into political and security cooperation. So the East Asian cooperation has now uh, expanded from economic cooperation to many other areas, including especially uh, including the non-traditional security arrangements. So I hope in the future, regional economic cooperation can uh, generate more and more uh, cooperation in security area, not just non-traditional security, but also the traditional security. And in environmental protection, in dealing with pandemic, in dealing with uh, cross-border crime, all these kind of things. So I think that's the, that's the way to manage regional security challenges because fundamentally speaking, the dynamics for regional evolution today in, in Asia, especially in East Asia, is economic, uh, not security. Maybe we need to brush off the old functionalist theories that were uh, applied right. to, to Europe back yeah. in the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, this has been uh, this has been very uh, interesting and enjoyable, and uh, thank you so much for your time and insights, Kyle. Did you want to? Yeah, Professor Wu, I really do appreciate this as well. It, it has been such a great conversation, and, and uh, thanks for sharing your knowledge and perspective with us. You know, I just wanted to ask one more frivolous question. I, when we get past uh, the pandemic, when the world gets past it, and we're able to travel more freely again, you know, Shanghai is one of the cities uh, that I, one of my favorite cities, based on all the ones that I've visited. If people had just one place that they could visit when they uh, are able to come to Shanghai again, where would you recommend they go? What's your favorite spot in the city? Well, I don't know. I don't. Uh, you mean if they're the first-time visitor, right? Yeah, just for a first-time visitor, what would be? The, where would you say that they should go? It doesn't have to be a big tourist attraction. Just uh, anywhere, like some some place that you could think that would make an impression on them uh, for whatever reason. Well, there are many places they should go, uh, but I. I I would say they should go to the museum, the, the Shanghai Museum, 
that's that's the best. So you just you really know the the the, the history, uh, not just of Shanghai but but the country. That is very important. Well, I I just want to make sure you know that uh, we would be very happy to welcome you to Des Moines. As, uh, I visited you and a couple times in Shanghai, but you know your colleague Rin Junfeng uh, visited us about a year ago and had a great time. So uh, you're always welcome here. Well, thank you for your thank you for your invitation. That has been a very uh, stimulating exchange. Thank you. And thank you, dear listeners, for listening to U.S. China Searching for Common Ground. You can find us most places you prefer to listen to podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. We're hosted on Anchor, where you can find notes for each episode, including links to works by our guests, as well as a full transcript for this episode. Reach out to us by emailing david.skidmore at drake.edu.